yeah. That sounds like a pretty chill Sunday. As it, as it goes, hopefully I've got too much Charles. Eventually going to get some reading in, Eventually. hopefully. You it's plan the, your uh, reading. You're one of those people who has to plan to read. No, I just, I, I'll usually get into a vein of stuff and then, you know, you, you want to just kind of keep reading it, but it's it's kind of that age-old joke of when you're younger and you don't have the money to invest in this stuff you'd really like to read, watch, or hear. Yeah. But then when you're older and you have the money and you buy it, then it's, uh, you know, when when do you find the time to indulge? always happy to chew the fat about uh you know whatever the obsessions are or you know any interest come about the world as we have it i mean we should start with the first question because i do have some set questions which is uh who are you uh my name is paul Korchan. i um i'm an independent cartoonist so my stuff usually leans a bit more into just gross out comedy for the most part um sometimes not necessarily too heavy on the gross out but like the uh the most recent book that's due out this month from uh, know nothing publishing is donald trump super awesome american adventure and it's presented as a uh, this comic that you're reading is he's approaching todd mcfarlane at a cafe to try to get image to publish it and so todd cracks it open and then we're met with the story and it's just a complete 50-50 mix of canon action films type plot progression and one-liners. And then the genuine rabbit hole of QAnon beliefs. And I just thought the two would go really well together. I think it's funny. It's got some uh, you know, good reviews. And I actually hit up quite a few of my art heroes for blurbs and was pleasantly surprised and relieved. and. Yeah, you know, my fear was, of course, that they'd see the title, and then never make it beyond that, and think, "Oh God, it's some sort of really bizarro far right kind of guy trying to do Trump fan fiction." There was. I'm not going to lie. When I first kind of opened your profile, and I was like, "Okay," and I, I've seen this a couple of times where, like you say, you you people who make art about Trump and the whole situation. You, it's going to go one way or another. So you kind of yeah. have to do your reading to see where <laughs> where this is going to go. Yeah. You can get the, the people who take <laughs> it too seriously where it's sort of like, this is my stab in the face of a man. But I wanted to do just the Mad Magazine kind of thing mm-hmm. where you have your topic and you may, might have your opinion on the matter, but you kind of just treat it with the attitude of the class clown like, I'm just going to make poo-poo pee-pee jokes and it just stars this thing, which is very much the attitude that that book takes. And uh, the the guy that I sent it to for a blurb that I was, you know, excited that he read it at all, but, you know, I think kind of would get it the most is uh, Lawrence Hubbard, who does Real Deal Comics, okay. which, have you ever read that stuff? I've not read it. I've heard of it, though. Fantagraphics put out a pretty affordable collection of it, and it's it's just balls out action, you know, stuff that you probably wouldn't want your mom looking through, or you know, the general public looking over your shoulder while you're reading it. Mm-hmm. But it's it's got a very, you know, once again, kind of a Mad Magazine or um, Simpsons sort of thing where you start off with the story. There's the inciting incident. And then you just see how far in the stratosphere you can take it to ridiculous levels. So you've not managed to get one to and, uh, Todd McFarlane? No, uh, <laughs> I'm, I did think I my first ongoing comic or long form thing was uh, a serialized thing for No Nothing called Not Spawn, mm-hmm. which was just about this Napoleon Dynamite uh kind of douchebag who gets a bunch of spawn comics and decides i'm going to become a vigilante 
And in his own mind, he's out there performing heroic tasks, but it's really just this goofus in a badly made spawn outfit with a machete going out hacking people. And we kind of follow that. And of course, it ends with him getting murdered by one of the women that he had he had saved, but then he gets upset that the babes aren't falling for him. Okay. And this girl left her purse, so he goes to return it, and she thinks he's stalking him, and it turns into this cartoonish bloodbath that ends with him getting murdered with his own machete. And I did think about sending a copy to Todd McFarlane or trying to find out how to get a copy in his hands, but he's pretty litigious. Yeah, some some I, I was having this conversation the other day actually. Um I find it always find it interesting how some public figures are very easy to contact. Yeah. And some are completely hidden, completely and, and it's always surprising on some of the ones you can contact and some of the ones you can get in contact with and just have an email address just readily available if you do yeah. and you get a reply and it's 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 kind of nice when you you know other times like you say, you know, Thomas Palin's protected by such and such and such barrier and agent and there's no way to really contact him. But at the same time, I appreciate that if I, I was a, that kind of popularity, I wouldn't want everyone in the world emailing. Yeah, <laughs> I could imagine that if he had a more public email, the amount of guys in their 30s and 40s mm. constantly trying to email him art or spawn story ideas probably be enough that you know makes you want to go sit in traffic. I mean, we've all had that stage where we thought we read Spawn and thought, yeah, that, that could be me. <laughs> Anyone that has read Spawn and liked it inevitably had in their notebook at school their own version of the Hell Hero. Yeah, yeah. It's the same with Batman. Like it's oh, very yeah. much you know you see it and you're like, oh yeah, I could be Batman. I don't work out and I have no money, but <laughs> I could be Batman. Like, I'd love to you know see someone put together a coffee table book that compiles that the sort of twelve to sixteen year old. Yeah, in the middle school, middle high school thing where it's the kids that like superheroes that create their own, but really it's the fanfic version. But it's always th that same kind of thing where it's shot up to 11. You know, I had a friend whose character was basically Wolverine, but he had four claws and they came oh. out of his knuckles. And I think he was a cyborg or something. There's some sort of thing where his um, forearm could extend and he would make like this jackhammer motion. And my friend was really into the idea of, you know, he's got super arms, so he's not like Wolverine. He's not quite like and, him, but he's he's also very like him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's not like Wolverine. He's got four claws. So there's a difference. You just reminded me, there's that, I'm struggling for the name, there's a, there's a superhero film with Will Smith in it. I can't remember the name of it. It's where he like he plays like a drunken superhero, Hancock. Oh yeah, a, yeah. A film called Hancock, and I remember watching an interview with him, and someone was asking, "Oh, you know, why were you interested in this character? Why did you want to be this this person?" And he said something along the lines of like, "Oh, well, I, I'd never. I thought it'd be interesting to do a brand new hero who had powers which no one had ever really seen or looked into before." And the interviewer kind of sits there and goes, well, "Your your character can fly, is invulnerable." And ends up with like a Boy Scout persona, and there's a moment where his brain's just going, "Oh no, what did I say? Did did we just rip off Superman in a major way?" <laughs> there was that kind of weird period in in the late, like before Dark Knight, but after kind of that glut of uh, you know, Daredevil and the first few X Men movies, where there were the original superhero or original concept superheroes movies uh the one that is really good and no one's ever seen is uh i have to look i think it's called S super but it's got michael rapaport in it oh wait is this does this have um ah uh... he's he's on some sort of drug study and it's basically a placebo and so you keep seeing this thing where he'll try to right. show them look i can fly and i'll jump off the desk and you know, be floating, oh, yeah. and then you see what the 
the doctors see and he's just smashed his face into the floor and is bloody and is just laying on his belly going oh i'm flying and then of course at the end there's a it ends with a, a bit of he does perform some sort of extraordinary task and you're left wondering hmm it's got some very generic name like it's not super but it's something like that no because i think i think super is there's another film called super oh that's the one with uh uh dwight from the office yeah i was just about to say the guy from the office i can never remember his real his real name (laughs) but that one's that that one came out kind of like post kick-ass yeah it's like they're they're like oh we need to amp up kick-ass to be more r-rated and more violent so we'll make super yeah and yeah and making him kind of a christian nut job yeah that was it yeah disconnected from reality is that what hollywood is is hollywood just like a bunch of like 16 year old guys who are like we've seen this we need to make it r-rated now (laughs) i like to think that it's sort of this continuous circle where now you know, they've seen that superheroes make money. And now that the studios own the rights to make their own, when that gets exhausted, I hope it kind of falls the same way where you had the way you had the indie black and white boom, you know, mm. that led to Turtles and Cerebus and Faust and, you know, 8 million other short lived black and white superhero comics of questionable quality and morals you'll kind of see the same thing where they're going to start throwing uh, darts at the wall and seeing what sticks. And... I do I, I do like the idea of like executives wandering through like an indie comic, indie zine fair, looking for content. <laughs> there's, there's something very yeah. satisfying about that. Because they're not, they wouldn't know what to make of it. You know, some of the stuff they wouldn't see it, that it's satire. Like the probably the prime example would be Faust, that it's so over the top and gratuitous and gross that if you take it seriously, you're missing out on the joke. But to Joe Schmo in a boardroom looking for a new IP, like, oh, the kids is going to love this. He's from hell. He looks like Wolverine <laughs> and it's real gritty. And he's a serious hero. Yeah. And it's, we can get it cheap because the guy the guy's not very well known. So we, we you know, no one yeah. knows about it. We can we can get it cheap, you know. <laughs> I just it, it'd be it almost come to that level where you you know like where you you see comic cons and stuff now and you see people walking around and they look completely out of place surrounded by oh, all yeah. these cosplayers and you just see someone walk through in like an Amani suit and you're like that guy's <laughs> that guy doesn't belong here and like there's a woman over there who's like dressed all in black and I'm very confused <laughs> like are they agents <laughs> from Shield like no <laughs> that's just business now <laughs> and they're getting confused as uh, Mulder and Scully. That would be the best. That that yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> that's got an indie comic like storyline written all over it. Yeah, executives getting mistaken for cosplayers. Undercover executives looking for IPs, but not really understanding the material or uh, what makes it shine. When you end up accidentally cosplaying as undercover agents from other things. <laughs> See now that's kind of interesting because that's good the way they've gone with some character designs mm. in the comics and you can kind of see that they are maybe doing it in the movies too that it's designed specifically for the ease of having people cosplay as it because that's a great way to maintain your ip and keep it in the public eye is have people give you free uh promotion mm. yeah. yeah seeing redesigns of uh some of the goofier characters especially dc like i i want a streetwise version of green lantern that uh some 16 year old can see and go oh wow i need some doc martens some cargo pants that's going to be the next wave is making golden age heroes as a cosplay ready modern superheroes i think the the funny thing about that is that those characters already exist like like you're saying, like a streetwise version of Green Lantern is Guy Gardner, who was like yeah. a leather, leather jacket and some boots, and he was basically there. And then you, you think about like Iron Man and Superman and all these things. They all had like these B-movie side yeah. characters who were imitations of them, and Marvel and DC brought them in to be like, oh, hey, we need more of this, but with a different storyline or background. 
the cyborg and, Superman as the uh, the big yeah. one that everyone remembers that was just a massive letdown. See, I, I there's like a subtle part of me which enjoyed it. <laughs> the design was great, and I remember finally getting the um, the trade paperback that collected all of the Return of Superman stuff from right, yeah. Walden Books, and right on the cover of it was the cyborg Superman. You know, oh, this is going to be amazing, and you know, you kind of know it's not the real Superman, obviously, but you think, well, this guy's going to have a great story and some cool mm-hmm. powers, and he's going to get to shine, and it is the prime example of surface level cool because what's his, he's a dead astronaut that I forget what company it is. Yeah. You know, rebuilt him and he never got to do much. That's probably the biggest crime of that era that you had a cyborg version of <laughs> Superman that looked pretty badass. Little, little like Deathlock, but not, didn't have yeah. the decaying flesh. Not, not too much, like too similar, just enough similar. But you know, you might mistake Enough it. Enough that you're going to get the crowd that just saw Terminator Two to look at a Superman book. Yeah, I, I mean, I also think there's a, there's a, there's as much as conspiracy headed as it is, I think a lot of studios now will do a thing where they make movies and covers which look very similar. Yeah, because they're trying to get parents who don't know what they're buying to buy that thing. So they're like, oh, that's definitely Iron Man when it's not. And it's just like sure. the bad imitation of it. Oh, you know, I was like, yeah, that's, that's this is Batman. This is DC. It's like he'll like that. And it's like you know, it's that classic thing of the kid on Christmas Day who's getting the cut cut price version of the thing they actually yeah. wanted. And I think that's yeah. that's the thing. The discount version. <laughs> yeah, the wish version is it's, it's commonly known that's, nowadays. I uh, I'm from America, but I live in the UK. I was and so say, if I go to if I go to a um like a news agents type store where they got all the periodicals Mm. marvel maybe dc but i now that i think about it i've only seen marvel they put out they they're about the size of a trade paperback but they're they've got like a flimsier cover not quite normal monthly title flimsy but not paperback cardboard and all of the covers are just that generic sort of, if it's an Iron Man one, it's the Iron Man art that you've seen on a t-shirt. If it's X-Men, doesn't matter if it's the Grant Morrison X-Men where they're wearing black suits, it's going to be that 90s era Wolverine with the fangs jumping out at you. Mm-hmm. And it's, I imagine, like you said, being a, a kid that gets that, and you look at the cover and go, wow, this is going to be great. Look at Iron Man, he's all jacked, he's got guns everywhere. And then you open it up and it's like the Matt Fraction run where he's sad because he's rich. Mm. What a bummer that would be. I know, right? The poor rich people out there who are just you know, trying to live their lives in their mansions. and <laughs> Suddenly feel yeah. like they need to get involved in the lives of everybody else. <laughs> I, I do occasionally look through them because I want to see how that goes in terms of Mm. what story arcs they collect and it seems to be newer ones but i keep hoping and i tell myself i'd actually buy it if i saw it where you get once again that kid bait sort of you know moms know this character kind of cover and it's iron man but then you open it and it's demon in a bottle and little little timmy who really liked iron man you know, in the Avengers movies, is going to have to read about the time he was an alcoholic <laughs> and vaporized a guy when he was drunk. I forgot about that. There's so many like throwaway areas in comics where I I, I follow a few twers which are like out of context comics panels, and mm-hmm. there's so many bits where you just like, how did this? How did this get into this comic? Like this this whole like plot line, especially when it comes to like sex and stuff. A lot of that oh, in yeah. the 90s was way more included. And you said, they were like, this was, they were making this for like 13 year olds and they threw in like some marital affair and were like, yes. yeah, 13 year olds will care about this. <laughs> yeah, you'd get a lot of that or the, uh, you know, any of the Jim Lee X Men sort of mm. romance drama between, well, all of the X Men, because apparently that, that was just like the Big Brother house where they're all banging each other. X-Men, there is no holds barred in the X-Men house. Is it, is it, I was I was going to ask you, because I mean, I, I knew you were in the UK, um, but I didn't realize that you were from America. 
Um, and I was going to say, like, how are you finding that in terms of kind of like fiction, US to UK? Do you see there's like a massive difference? Um, I mean, from what I've seen at the stores, there's it, equal stuff is available. I haven't seen anything really, um, yeah, that I wouldn't be able to get back in the states or vice versa. Um, except for which this is the topic I, you know, when you asked me to pitch a topic, it was like old pulp novels. Mm. I've become really interested in that difference, the the fiction that existed in the 50s and 60s in pulp magazines. Uh, that never really happened in the UK, apparently. Yeah, you know, that whole sleaze, rough coarse newsprint, crazy articles, you know, and that kind of stuff where it's presented as truth or written as if it's journalistic, but it's a story called the the uh let me just i've got my pile of books i pulled off the shelf um passion slave of the whip goddess there we go that's a, a prime pulp story yeah. written with a complete journalistic edge and doing a bit of research on it that never really kind of came over to the uk or europe but no. both america and australia had booming markets for that sort of thing and it kind of started because i was wanting to reread some of the mickey spillane uh, my camera stuff mm -hmm. and it's not impossible to find but you i'd pay a little bit extra for cheap old paperbacks than i would back home it was yeah. the only difference but no one i've talked to that really likes crime fiction over here has heard of it and you know having those conversations there's obviously in the uk there were their own detectives and that idea of crime fiction and it got me thinking about how completely american that concept of the dime store dime novel detective especially my camera who's basically a thug right you know, yeah. carries around the gun and just flat out says in in the movie with ralph meeker i'm not that smart i just find someone who knows a bit more and i beat it out of them it's a, yeah. a very uniquely american kind of hero <laughs> yeah you can't yeah. quite picture uh hercule poirot uh punching yeah. a thug's head into the brick repeatedly until he gets some information i was just about to say like european detective and and crime was very much very much held behind the um middle class veneer of england right and it was very much like um it was like midsummer murders and and all these kind of like shows which take place in like country villages and yeah houses and everything gets stripped back to there no one was looking at us in a city and going yeah we should we should send a guy in there because they didn't want to think about that they want to think about like the nice methodical yeah world and how everything was you know dukes and laws and all those kinds of things um but no it's interesting that you say that about um kind of americana not really making it over here in that fashion because i i think i agree in the sense of yeah we 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 held back in terms of content and and publishing in that way um but at the same time england and and britain at least have a very like almost childlike view of publishing in the sense of we we didn't do a lot of adult novels but really there, there was a lot of like children's publishing was very very like indie and there was a lot of like sci-fi and and stuff like that but that was that was the problem like you say like they that kind of fantastical edge of parody and, and journalism and, and pulp in america was taken up by adults who were like yeah this is this is the stuff we want to read this is the paperback volume whereas here it was it was thrown to children it wasn't seen for adults because huh. adults were too busy doing adult <laughs> so that's that's interesting because i kind of thought it, it would have been i was surprised that pulp didn't really happen in the uk on the basis that i tend to think of it as like london mm. you know, massive city obviously the home of publishing and probably a lot of sales of print media i can't imagine a, a better vehicle of a uh, fiction than a cheap um i actually have where is it uh, one of the UK editions of uh, 
uh, of like a true crime kind of thing. Hmm. It's smaller yeah. than a regular paperback. You know, printed in London, 1954. It would fit really well in your inside breast pocket on your your jacket. And it reading would. that on the, the tube is what I would have thought would have. But then you'd, you'd have to think: Do you want to be seen reading that? Because we're very repressed as a country. That's a good point. <laughs> I didn't think about that. Yeah, all the salacious covers. There's a lot of um, a lot of fiction in the UK which kind of got hidden. I think. And this is this is what we find now, especially if you go to kind of charity shops and, and flea yeah. markets in the UK. You'll be going through books and covers and you, you'll find something. You'll be like, when was this made? And it was like, oh, this was from like 1950, published in Essex somewhere. And you're looking at you like, why have, why has no one ever really heard of this? And you look it up online and it'll have been seen by like 10 people. And it's because a lot of those books were just kept in houses, in hmm. a box, in the attic and never really meant to be seen by the world because you can't be seen to be reading trash you need to be seen to be reading the <laughs> classics and you need to be seen to be educating yourself nobody yeah. reads trash and yet it's there it's just it's just very well hidden <laughs> that's that hadn't occurred to me and i i i don't know maybe i'll have to try to go to a few more estate sales because i i am a huge mark for thrift stores and over here at charity shops hmm. I live in a small town where there's quite a few of them. And, you know, my, my loop once a week is, you know, go to get the groceries, but I take the long way so I can hit all the charity shops. And, you know, I'm always on the lookout for it, but I I don't think I've ever actually found one thing that I would consider pulp. I mean, you'll find like a Raymond Chandler paperback, mm. a, a modern one, but Chandler wasn't really, that was a step for him until he could get to write full-length novels yeah yeah he's a bit more you could be seen in public reading a raymond chandler book yeah you could get away with that it's got a nice font to it so you'd be fine <laughs> but i have noticed that over here the um the two things that i just went through and picked up a bunch was decided i'm going to reread the conan stuff i've wanted to sold it all when i moved over here mm-hmm. time to rebuy it and i've been dreading it thinking it's going to cost a bunch of money they are probably the cheapest paperbacks i've ever found on ebay like complete set 10 pounds but it's it is the frazetta covers which i didn't expect to be used over here because you you talk like you just said you don't want to be seen reading that kind of stuff in public you know those frazetta covers if if you're worried about reading something like you know that in public where um, Mm -hmm. she's got a little bit of cleavage and a sideways glance those frazetta covers where the women are let's be honest nude they might yeah. be wearing a uh, a breastplate or some sort of garb but it's so perfectly formed and you can tell when it was originally drawn in pencil yeah she's naked and frazetta was like oh yeah i gotta put some uh there she's wearing <laughs> I got, a top. i've got to put clothes on this person <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got uh there's one cover conan the freebooter which mm. actually at least over here, I, it might be one I just never saw in the States. There's full on, like he's decapitating a gorilla on the cover. And these are the mid 60s publications. Yeah. So the, there's, it's interesting as well. I think in the UK, at least, there was very much a deviation between fantasy and horror and kind of real world detective and everything else okay. in the category like so that kind of like you mentioning um well like sci-fi and, and fantasy work a lot of that stuff is what became pulp in the uk because again right. it was kind of it was seen as like nonsensical it was seen as fantasy it was seen as you know something you didn't have to worry about and was perhaps for, for yeah, there's no already. veneer of it being real yeah. life there's no veneer of real life so then it couldn't corrupt anybody because it's fantasy and then you obviously we got the whole <laughs> it'll corrupt everybody with like D&D and satanic yeah. panic and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when you think about the timeline of kind of publication and things in the 60s and 70s, at the same time, you had things like uh, television censorship, which was amping up in the UK at that time. And really? See, I don't know much about that at all. I, I know about the, the video nasties, and that's kind of my yeah. where it begins and ends for my knowledge on that sort of thing. Yeah, and it, it 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 
it had i mean obviously i know in the us there was kind of like the censorship board and the rules for what you could do on tv and how they kind of like gradually deteriorated in the uk again it was it wasn't so much that these things weren't being published it was just they were being pushed out of the public eye or you were seen as a deviant for being involved with them in any capacity hmm. um which is again they kind of led, led into like the punk era which was an absolute yeah revolution against that and it was like well no we have all these things and then zines came around and just retaliated we're, we're oppressed people and then when we get annoyed we do it big and then it gets you know we get locked down afterwards again <laughs> <laughs> which is i mean i guess our current retaliation <laughs> so, so now who would be the because i know like michael moorcock like he is Brit- a british author right mm-hmm. the guy did elric so I think of him as probably the most contemporarily uh, British fantasy hero, you know, the opposite of Conan, very smart, not very physically imposing, bit dainty, but he has a vampire sword. And then yeah. you know, Tolkien, there's really not much else I know of, of any any fantasy stuff. Um, so I, I'd say one of the most common ones is Pratchett. Like oh, Pratchett. yeah, of course, Pratchett. Yeah. And I I always kind of class him in like a pulp capacity because I could see that his work was so heavily produced. Um, like there was there's so many like every charity shop in the UK has a copy of yeah. Pratchett. There's always usually a shelf of it. Um, but at the same time, it was very tongue in cheek. It was very pointing fun at everything else which was going on. And there was like a few darker bits, but it was light hearted. And I, I yeah. think that that again, I think maybe shields people from what the UK did with fiction because we have such a habit of being uncomfortable with serious subjects so we'll put a joke in it hmm. you know we'll we'll not discuss or we'll discuss sex and we'll discuss violence or we'll discuss something very very serious but it'll be done with like a light-hearted edge so yeah. it's palatable whereas in the US obviously it's just we're going to go full full bar on this <laughs> yeah yeah that that kind of makes a, a lot more sense because I, mm. I think I've been going to a few used bookstores and, you know, before I found out that pulp magazines didn't really have, like the men's adventure stuff specifically, the 60s, 70s, and I think there were still probably a few in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, you can find a lot of those in any vintage shop, bookstore, any used shop that has magazines in the U.S., yeah. you're going to find some they're going to be a little ratty because it's not like they were well built to begin with but they're there yeah and you know never really turned up any of those but one of the things that i have found in many charity shops over here is to me somewhat something that is ripped straight from those pages the uh, the mark bolan executioner books yeah, that rings a bell. The Don Pendleton, well, Don Pendleton, I think only wrote the first 39, but of mm. course it has his name on the whole series. But it's always in a, a charity shop that'll have a massive vein of uh, Tom Clancy, uh, what's his name, Andy McNabb. Yeah, and then yep. there'll be a few executioner books plugged in there, which I like to think that someone's grandfather. You know, someone's getting their their granddad some reading material, and you got the Tom Clancy books that are about that thick, and you know, espionage involving submarines or whatever it is he's writing about. Andy McNabb, I assume the same thing. And then, you know, oh, what's the sexy? You know, executioner takes on you know, domestic terrorism. Yeah, that's war. He gets yeah. in that, and I don't know if you've ever read any of those books. They are. I tried but, reading. Like I tried reading a Tom Clancy novel once, and oh no, I mean the the Executioner. Oh, the Executioner. No, I haven't. Oh, I I recommend it. Yeah, they Not are like Tom Clancy. No, no, it's <laughs> it is the it predates like the canon action films. Mm. But like, have you ever saw the Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie? Yeah. yeah, it's the best movie based on the Executioner because it's that's what he's like. Right. Yeah, I guess the whole thing is he's an ex-sniper, comes home, and what's great about that, whereas the Punisher, you're always kind of, he's avenging his family, and you never really forget that. Uh, The Executioner, after about the second book, 
you know, he comes home and what his younger sister is turning tricks for the mob because his dad got in debt with them from gambling and his mother, basically a bunch of them get killed. And then his brother goes, younger brother goes crazy and ends up in a mental hospital. And then about three books later, that character just kind of disappears. And he's never really ever brooding or that upset even in the first book where he's like i'm gonna use my vietnam home skills to you know bring the war home he's he's going out getting with uh i think in the first book he he hooks up with like five different women yeah never seems that upset drinks some whiskey polishes his guns makes jokes (laughs) this this is it's so far removed from um, the dowager of a fine estate was murdered. <laughs> and you, you just reminded me, I, re- I remember when I, I studied censorship in the 70s and there was there was a thing about revenge and there was a, a rule in film where characters could take revenge, but they had to be upset about it. Like that, that was the rule of like you. That is, they, that's amazing. Yeah, initially you, could, you couldn't take revenge in a film. Like that was the initial thing, and the um, the the prime examples, uh, Todd Browning's Freaks, where the, yeah, the, yeah, they take revenge and they banned it because they were like, you know, there's a revenge plot in this film. You can't have that amongst the huh. other things to do with Todd Browning's Freaks, which obviously they didn't like. Um, but that was like that was a thing, and then they changed it. It was like, okay, they can take revenge, but they have to show remorse for what they've done. They can't feel satisfied by it because that will corrupt the nation. <laughs> And we just, See, we just, now, uh, all the barriers, which is all the barriers of what we do. Yeah, I, I like the, I, well, like, I love the Hammer horror movies, mm. but I never quite understood why they were so, you know, the, they were considered so hardcore in the UK, even mm. for being 60s era. Um, and now that you say that there were rules like that about like how you take revenge was grounds for censorship, I now kind of see why. Yeah, the hammer stuff was yeah, you know, hardcore for the era. Well that's that's why we we embraced Americana so much, was it was stuff which you couldn't get hold of in the UK. Or to get hold of it, you'd have to go somewhere really seedy. Like you you could get, you know, flash fiction, but you'd be in a sex shop buying it. You right. Know, it's like because that's the only place you could buy a banned book would be in somewhere where there's already things which are considered to be deviant. And so when America started pumping out stuff and and one of the reasons we kind of embraced comics so much as well was because it was readily available. You could get it. You could just go, go buy it, get it shipped in. And it was, it was just so in your face. But again, yeah. that, that, that led to the, the biggest stereotype of Americans being loud and brash and all this kind of stuff, because that's everything we were receiving and everything we sure. were consuming. <laughs> so now on the subject of comics though, hmm. So 2000 AD, that comes out a bit about what? Early 70s, 70, yeah, that's like two, 70. 73, I believe. Yeah. Judge Dredd is is way more gruesome than any of the Marvel DC stuff that would have come mm-hmm. over. And of course, it is a satire of American, well, America as a whole, but especially the American police yeah. when you put them next to you know, British police. Yeah, yeah. But how did that work then? Or is it because Dread is, once again, I guess, pretty far in the future? There's flying cars and stuff, and there is a bit of a fantasy element. Yeah. They were able to get away with that. It's it's where you, it's where it started to drift and where it started to change. It's like, you know, okay. the 70s were kind of coming around. They passed the summer of love. Um, everything had kind of was edging into punk rock as well. So there was a lot of that kind of flash fiction flash zines riot girl zines music was taking off and then in comics is it it began to be very much okay well if the americans are cranking out this stuff we can do that as well the music's getting more angry what level of parody can we do because the uk is known for satire we're known for sarcasm and taking people on but not in a violent way it's always in a no. comic, comical way, you know. It's spitting image. It's grotesque, but it's it's yeah. children based. Um, so when stuff like 2008 started coming out, it was very much along the lines of, okay, well, first off, he's American, so we don't need to worry about offending anyone in the UK. Um, and let's just put it in a fantasy setting, 
because no one, you know, no one's going to relate that to the UK industry of, you know, industrial complex. Yeah. And you you can push it that way. And then they just, they went as far as they could and further and further. And then that's when you start to see more gruesome sci-fi come out of the UK and, and more, uh, right. more along those lines of just us adapting more of that, which I always find interesting now is that from the US standpoint and the UK standpoint, I often think we now go further than the US does because US media is so heavily censored these days. Yeah. Well, it's both censored and then you, know, you have that uh, American tradition of hardcore capitalism where one company will own a good portion of the smaller companies that represent publishing or film or music. And so there's not a lot of smaller companies competing, each trying to outdo each other, which leads to great stories and great characters. Mm -hmm. Instead, you've got, well, what you have right now with Marvel and DC, they're just IP farms for Disney and Warner Brothers. And they don't really expect the comics to sell at all. So why try? Yeah. It's, I, and, it, the, the censorship side of it is something which I still haven't gotten used to over here. Um, like a good example from last night was I was, I was watching, have you seen the Reanimator film? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was watching Reanimator on television. So just on like the TV channel, which came free with my TV. It was like, we're showing an old film. I was watching that and they blurred out the nudity. And there was beeps in the swearing. And I'm like, mm -hmm. it's 11 o'clock at night. Like, the people watching this are, have seen nudity, are aware of what swearing is. And if a kid is up late, then that's just, like, bad pairing. But this is just, why? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I, I love that kind of stuff, honestly. That's, that leads to just some of the, it makes the movie almost better and more legendary. But Reanimator is kind of a strange one to even bother to show if you have to censor it. It's so. The violence was fine. It's a splatter film, first of all. Like, there's nothing but sex and blood in it. All the violence was shown. It's It'd be a bit like, I don't know, putting a, a body count song on the radio. Like You're going to have to take out enough of it to make it presentable. Man, what was it reanimator about a 45 minute movie when you cut out the, well, this, uh, the the good stuff this is the thing like the 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 violence was all there oh yeah but you can't have nudity you're, and they, you're cut, gonna they get, beep the swearing <laughs> you i forget what it is because i looked into it um primarily because of the the way i saw robocop as a kid was you know mm. you see the tv version first and then you, know, you bug your parents to get you the tape and I've got a um, a whatever anniversary edition back on the shelf that comes with the TV edit. So of I don't course, I've ever seen the TV know, edit. Yeah. Oh, it's it's fantastic because it it really does show you what the censors considered gratuitous in terms of mm -hmm. violence versus it was like ah oh, yeah that's fine that's this is a family movie. Yeah. And so it's weird stuff where of course head wounds that's got to go. And then. Not all limbs being blown off, but stuff like, I think, fingers, you know, gets censored right. for some reason. But, like, the, the big example is the scene in the boardroom when Ed 209 goes haywire and starts turning the, the guy into cottage cheese. Basically unchanged. Like, I think they trim a second off of it, but it's... That's bad. The guy falls back, it's sitting there going, doo, 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 and, you know, viscera is flying. But then, of course, you got to cut out the f words. Of course, you can't look, can't look. That's it's, uh, swearing. <laughs> that's what's gonna cause the downfall of society. Um, that's kind of my favorite thing to to look at over here when when I rebuy something that you know I used to own in America. Yeah, got to rebuy it over here. The how the ratings change. Yeah, uh, because some of the stuff it's. It's funny if it's more of a sex comedy kind of thing. I think uh, the prime prime example is I think Clerks or one of Kevin Smith's movies is rated just a fifteen over here. Yeah, but of course in the U.S. it's hard R because of all yeah. the swearing. But over here, stuff where it's just dirty words. Now nah, I don't care. That's yeah, that's fine as long as there's no violence, no implied pain or torture. 
yeah. you know, you can put that on for the 13 to 15 crowd, yeah. which makes sense really when you think about it. Obviously, a few dirty words, not that big of a deal. I Head mean, wounds, probably a bit more choosy with that. Yeah, I, I always think with the UK, if you <clears throat> if you did too much censorship of language, you wouldn't be able to include a lot of major cities in your films because the the street language is so sweary. Um, right. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, but whereas in you know guns and violence, we're not we're not down down on that, that side of things. <laughs> but it's interesting to see that though, like especially from both my perspective and your perspective, people who moved country and 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 created things is how other artists do react to that. You know, like yeah. like when like when seeing yours and and not knowing that you're from the US, I was like, this is this is pretty violent for coming out of the UK. Like, you know, no one in the UK is sitting going, you know what, I'm going to make a Trump comic about you yeah, know, this. Yeah, uh, people are, what, disemboweled, uh, yeah. all my normal. I like to draw violence mm -hmm. to the point where it's, you know, itchy and scratchy slash uh, Massimo Mattioli, the guy who, for all intents and purposes, really created itchy and scratchy. Mm -hmm. But Matt Groening kind of kept that quiet for a long time. Yeah. That level of violence where it's so, it's stupid. There's no other way to, to say it. It's, it can't, it's not remotely offensive or shocking because it's so over the top. Yeah. That sure, one or two people could take it seriously. But um, one of the ones in the, in the book that made me laugh and has made a few people laugh is uh, he rips someone's head clean off. Yeah, easily, because in my comics, people are just bags of red goo. Yep. There's not really structure there. Rips the head off, throws it. Two heads then explode. Eyeballs shoot out. I think there's five or six eyeballs, even though it's two heads. Because why not? Yep. Yeah, that is... I I kind of wonder now, because I've, I've given the copies where it's just black and white to a few co-workers who wanted to read it mm. and yeah you spend all day talking to people you know each other's uh humor is so you're not shocking but i do wonder if i gave that to someone who you know maybe liked independent comics but is more into the european albums or you know whatever's more contemporary what what would their initial reaction be of mm. something like that yeah I think it, it speaks to the value, though, of, of kind of needing to see what other countries and cultures are up to. Like you're saying, yeah. like with Pulp Fiction and, and and picking up comics from different creators, I think it's it's a great way of kind of expanding your, your repertoire outside of like, oh, I mean, absolutely. just obviously regular media and films can be kind of hard. Like we were saying at the beginning of it's hard to find time to consume some stuff sometimes. So seeing what indie creators make is a good reflection of what's kind of happening. Yeah. Well, and now that stuff is so much more available, mm. um, like the, honestly, if you were to look at my comics, like 90% of it's you know, European artists, because that's just, you know, who speaks to me at, at this point. Mm. Um, yeah. Probably the one that's the most represented would be this, I think he's Norwegian, Jason. It's just his, that's what he goes by. Just one word like share. Mm. And it's a Lynn Claire, you know, Hergé style. Okay. But I'm pretty sure he does it with a brush because there's thicker lines and it's variations. Right. And he deals with uh, pulp characters and archetypes. But then because it's so downplayed, it becomes more about the, you know, the emotions. You know, that's where his subtlety really is, is it's in, you know, the slight variation in mouth movement or eye shape. Mm. And one of the best ones that you know, really just showcases how you can play with very silly pop trash culture imagery, like monsters and stuff, mm -hmm. is it's a wordless comic he, or wordless short album he did where it's this luchador guy goes into a castle to save a, a woman. And then each page is a, you know, it's all four panel grid. Right. He has to fight a cyborg who looks like the Terminator. He has to fight 
uh, Godzilla that's, you know, his size. Uh, he's got to fight a couple of trolls, like just keeps going down the line of every kind of, you know, monster you'd see in the horror section of your video store. And then at the end, he's just so exhausted, he kind of, you know, slumps down. And then the final panel, instead of him carrying out the woman, which is what he's thinking of when he goes in on the first pages, she's carrying him out. And it's all that kind of wry, clever, and fun stuff. And then conversely, um, the I buy a lot of Japanese stuff. Mm-hmm. There's this art movement that started in the 80s and still goes strong today, usually in alternative manga journals called Heita Uma. Mm-hmm. And it's loosely translates in English to bad good. Right. But you get stuff where it's it kind of covers this whole gamut of you know, you'll have someone like uh goto yukai i think is her name and she draws it looks like she draws it on the subway on her way to work right you know no pencil nothing just pen paper and it's about what goes on in the subways of japan and there's this power rangers-esque team that goes and fights these threats mm-hmm. but they don't wear costumes or nothing they're just normal people but they assemble like that and you deal with all the tropes of that that kind of storytelling and then the two other guys that, of that same movement that i really like one of them is uh sorry frog in my throat ebaisu yoshikazu mm-hmm. who the best way i can explain his art is it's uh, do you know Ray Pettibone, the guy who did like a lot of Black Flag? Oh yeah, artwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Less ink heavy, but that same sort of like brush line with a few embellishments, and it deals heavily with the absurdity of everyday life, and then plays it out to gratuitous ends. Mm-hmm. One of his best stories is it's these two kind of construction worker guys, bosses, dick to his underling. You know, real rude to him, just spends the whole day riding his ass. And the the uh, kid gets enough of it, beats him to death with a crowbar. And you'd think, okay, that's where it's going to end. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a violent power fantasy of how, you know, sometimes you want to beat your boss. That's not where it ends. Of course, people see this, call the cops, and this riot group comes in. And all he can do is piss himself as they surround him and then that's where it ends so it plays out to its it's not real world end but the logical conclusion if you go further than you would normally end yeah and then lastly it'd be uh, takashi namoto Mm -hmm. who honestly surprises me came out of japan because that's the first heita uma stuff i saw and it's if you go from reading the manga we get in the west Mm-hmm. which is what I did directly to someone saying, Oh, you should check this guy out. Find the one version of his stuff in English, buy it, read it. It makes our crumbs nastiest stuff. His most controversial stuff look like Winnie the Pooh. Wow. Okay. It is purely um, filth and there right. is a story to it. And it actually does have something to say. But, you know, when you kind of got to read it a couple of times because the imagery is so shocking. But same, once again, it's all drawn in this sort of cartoony style, similar to Hergé or any of the Lynn Clare stuff where there's no shading. Mm -hmm. But it's it's gratuitous in a way that the word simply doesn't cover. And it's fantastic. But you can kind of see where... And the way it was explained to me by uh, someone who's from Japan and one of the guys who recommended it to me is that this is a, a society that's very polite and you, know, you do this, this, this in public. Mm-hmm. So conversely, in media, especially if it's media for adults, you're going to have something that goes to the complete opposite end of the spectrum and bad taste. Yeah. And I, I wonder... I'd like to see some of that attitude applied in Western comics. Yeah. I, I not think, a lot. You know, you don't no, need not, not that too much. much of it, but just, just that one little bit of, uh, 
you know, in your face, mm. kind of a, a punk rock attitude. I think, I think this to kind of bring it to kind of a couple of rounded, rounded points. I think you're right. I think I, I almost feel like that stuff does exist. It's, it's just very well hidden. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, even kind of finding your stuff. Um, and when I, I bought uh, this your Spawn book, um, it was kind of like, okay, this is, this is the kind of stuff I like, you know, it's, it's that, that kind of comic-y lowbrow, but with like a message and that, that kind of 90s aesthetic to it which is a bit, like a big thing and i read a lot of that stuff and i went to a zine store the other day and again i kind of bought that kind of stuff um yeah. but i had to i had to go through so much to to get it um but at the same time i feel like a lot of people get trapped in the idea of complicating their message with what they're sure. creating and i think we can only get kind of more of the 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 valuable in your face work when people accept that they you know you don't need a multiverse and you don't need you know 20 storylines to carry a story through a comic if you no. just stick to like a simple message kind of like you're saying like the bad good stuff it's just like just a simple simple idea like one liner idea and then just exploring where that idea goes is yeah, what following creators need to do yeah like whereas a lot of people start off with they're very much like i know a bunch of writers and a bunch of people have spoken to me about they've got this idea they're working on this idea. They're fleshing out the characters. They're building the world. And they lose sight of the fact that they should just probably just write the book. Yeah. You know, because you oh, that's one of them. complex it. I now consider that the biggest mistake I ever made was reading Blake Snyder's Save the Cat. Right. Because I'm... Have you ever read that? Or No, no. So if you look it up, there's it's his beat sheet, which is now mostly used in Hollywood. Like, you can look at it and go watch the newest movie from Disney and it's going to follow it to a T. Mm -hmm. But it's basically not only perfecting the idea of a three-act story structure, but breaking down the key components in it. And it's what makes it, a lot of stuff seem very samey, especially the kind of people who get really into, you know, I need my character to be this, this, and this. And mm -hmm. it does kind of tend to be the people who want to tell more grounded or not grounded, but more relatable stories with the hero you actually want to root for. Yeah. And I'll routinely get that. When I'm sketching out ideas, I, my mind will kind of go back to, okay, well, I need to do this, this, and this. And you got to remember to throw that out. Yeah. Because not only can it become predictable once you know how to recognize it, it also sets you up to only be able to tell a few yeah. stories. Definitely. Uh, I've, I've I've routinely found myself, um, or the, I found a, one of the reasons I kind of like watching media is not knowing the end. So I yeah. routinely don't include an end in the stuff which I make. Um, the kind of the comics and and things we make. And I think that comes from watching quite a few Coen Brother films, where everything happens but nothing changes. And I, yeah. I love that that sensibility of yeah, these are just little pockets of what's going on, and getting to the end and going oh well that you know that was that we yeah we don't need anything else extra to add to it why not no it, it's one of the things that i love to do that you kind of can't do with any sort of uh anything to do with the beat sheet mm. is unlikable characters beyond holden caulfield that's like, yeah. why donald trump or not spawn like, you know following characters who you don't want to hang out with them. They're not even a lovable dirtbag. They're just a dick. And you know, when I'm sketching out ideas, like it's gotten, I've boiled it down now to, um, because I under, I, I know exactly how many panels I can fit per page. Mm -hmm. And I tend to think about each page as either a whole scene, if I can make it fit and not feel compressed, like an exposition dump yeah. or, you know, one steady camera angle for that page if it's taking place in the same unit or same scene. Mm -hmm. But I will just have a sheet of paper scrawled with just the ideas because if you can tell any, anyone can really tell a story, you know, the key components that we all understand is it has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. So getting bogged down with, you know, oh, I need to 
have the theme stated here. We need to see the character do this. Oh, and then act three has to be punctuated with a loss that turns into a new opportunity. Yeah. I'm much more interested at this point in uh, movies, media, or any sort of storytelling made by people who have no idea what they're doing and are approaching it with raw enthusiasm. Uh, one of the best action movies I've seen in years and years and years is um, this Ugandan flick, Who Killed Captain Alex? Which, right. Have you heard of it or seen it? No, no. So it's on YouTube free. Uh, the production company is called Wakaliwood, like Wakanda, but mm -hmm. also Hollywood. And it's, I think I've heard of that, 10, yeah. 10 years old at this point but it's just a, a action movie made by a bunch of people who loved american action movies and really wanted to make their own so they built their props they all have a fundamental understanding of of what a story is and so it has a beginning a middle and an end but it'll veer off into these absolutely insane action sequences you know bonkers camera angles characters that in a, a movie made by people who knew what they were, they were doing, you know, you'd uh, ascribe to the Chekhov's gun rule where we've seen this character do this, so he must be important. Yeah. Nope, someone just really wanted to do that camera angle, so they did it. And you get to see just that pure love of of whatever it is that that media is and they what they bring to it. Yeah. Uh, same thing with comics, like, I'd much rather see something that someone drew at their kitchen table because they just had this compulsion to do it than someone who, you know, wrote a script, did a few drafts, has really perfected this style. You know, I want to see the unfiltered id on the page or on the screen. I think that's a very good message to round this out. I think that's 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 the way people should create. I, sadly, though, I do have a, a finishing up question to, to bring this to an end, Paul. <laughs> uh, but no, otherwise, no, I, I do want to say thank you for coming on because that's yeah, it's been a nice little wild ride through through pulp fiction. As, as it, uh... Uh, thanks for uh, listening to me uh, ramble. No worries. Um, so my final question for you, and I'm asking every guest this year, is um, who should I speak to next? Who, who do you think I should have on the show next? I'll try to contact again on the show. Oof. That's yeah, tough. It's, 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 I'm stumping everyone with that. I'm getting to the end and finding. <laughs> but I've, I thought I should ask the people who come on because I, I enjoy their work and and find you know follow the rabbit hole, see what see where it takes me. Uh, I can only give you one name, or can I give you like a a top three? You can give me a top three. I can try to cut anyone. I will try to contact is essentially. And they can be big or small. I will try to contact Tom McFarlane if I need to. He won't, might, won't reply, but <laughs> we can try. So, um, two of them, I one of them I know personally, I've known, known for years. The other one's going to be a, a comic guy who I, I think is probably, you know, he's very entertaining to listen to him talk. But he'd also you know, be able to just go on and on and on and he's really interesting to listen to and then the third one is uh this guy who lives in japan who i buy a lot of my manga from but he's an expat from america who lives in japan and now his full-time job is going around digging for manga or if you ask him for stuff mm -hmm. yeah he'll go and get it and then he sells it and he's got this encyclopedic knowledge of, of stuff that doesn't exist outside of japan that we wouldn't see if it weren't for guys like him and it's a fascinating job that i'm just surprised that that can be a job yeah and i'd love to hear him talk um sure. so the first guy would be a, a good buddy of mine rick petty who's a filmmaker out of st louis missouri mm -hmm. um, we've made a few films together uh, he's written probably a dozen scripts at this point uh, really into what i would call that that kind of two-fisted action movie mm -hmm. type stuff okay you know guys going on adventures or really grimy coen brothers you know what could be a crime drama but it's about 
a guy who owns a sandwich shop. Mm-hmm. You know, really down to earth films that I think there should be more of. Definitely. And then the comic guy would be uh, Adam Yeater, who does a comic called Blood Desert, and he's he does it monthly, produces the whole thing himself, uh, does amazing watercolor covers, uses a brush to ink, and he actually. Uh, is one of the reasons I don't erase my pencil lines and stuff is he did it first. Right. And he gave a reason. The reason he gave for it is he wants you to see that this is, this is not done on an iPad. This is paper and you can look at it and see the steps that went into it, Mm -hmm. which is just a mind blowing idea that has made looking at his stuff, at least vastly more fun. And I'd like to think that, people kind of get the same thing out of mind where you, you can see the steps that went into it. Mm-hmm. Came and from so, a real person. Those are the three I'd nominate. Okay. I like it. I will find them. Well, I will also ask you for contact details, but <laughs> I will I will look them up. Um, but no, fantastic. Well, hopefully this hasn't been too painful. No. no I, I like uh, talking, so hopefully good. I didn't burn out the receiver. No, definitely not. No, I think it's been a good, good little journey through uh, through fiction from different cultures, and, and yeah, it's been great. In that case, then uh, we'll we'll call it there, and I will Perfect. we'll talk to these guys later. Thanks very much.